Hello, this is Nikki Toyamasito, Executive Director of Christians for Social Action, and your host for today's episode of 20 Minute Takes. This week, we talk with Dr. Nina Balmaceda. She's the Associate Director of the Center for Reconciliation at Duke Divinity, as well as the President for Paz y Esperanza Internacional. In this episode, we talk about peace building, church, and God's dream of shalom for the world. Join us for this conversation. Nina Balmaceda, thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Takes. Thank you, Nikki. Delighted to be here. You are an associate director at the Center for Reconciliation, and you do uh, peace building and reconciliation work uh, in the Latin American context. And we wanted to have a deeper understanding of what is peace and reconciliation, and maybe if you can connect it to why should Christians uh, care or be involved? I, I always love to have the opportunity to learn with people and explore together the biblical meaning of shalom. Shalom is the word that typically is translated peace uh, in our Bibles in English and other languages. But shalom, Irene, uh, from the, New, the Greek New Testament, uh, referred to something much more relevant. It is not just the absence of war. Now, mm-hmm. it is very important <laughs> to get to that point where the war is absent. We all want to work for that. But we would be wrong to think that once there is no violent conflict, then we enjoy peace. I like to think about shalom, and I believe this is what the Bible teaches about shalom. It has to do with God's will on earth. God wants that the conditions in in holistic terms, material, physical conditions, but also spiritual conditions to be present for every creature to flourish. And this is not only about humanity. Of course, we, as, as we bear God's image, that's very important that humans have conditions to flourish, but humans cannot flourish when the rest of creation is suffering degradation, when it is being destroyed. Mm. So shalom Mm -hmm. is a very holistic term that refers Mm -hmm. to the ways in which human beings and nature can flourish. And that obviously has very close connections with freedom and with equitable opportunities for all. And and it's in itself an invitation to work against all kinds of exclusions and discriminations. Now, you asked also about reconciliation. So uh, based on Shalom, reconciliation invites us uh, as a ministry, as we are called in the Bible, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, a ministry to bring people together, to rebuild the relationships, the connections, the interconnections that we have because we need one another in our great diversity We need one another to serve God and to care for this planet. So I would say reconciliation um, emphasizes the relationship, the need to work on healthy relationships between individuals, between families, between groups, and within, within groups, within families, 
and with ourselves and, and with our God. So um, Christians do many ministries around the world and in this country. Most of them are great ministries, but it is very important that along with trying to fight poverty, along with trying to end war, along with trying to provide good education, that we remember that the foundation to do all these good things is promoting reconciled relationships. Wow. And, you know, I think you pulled out a really helpful nuance because I think our shorthand is, you know, peace and war, right? That Those are opposites. But as you've unpacked the fullness of shalom and, and sort of this uh, a very full body, 360 degree uh, description of shalom, what would you say is the opposite of shalom? Exclusion. When we separate, when we divide, when we take distance from our fellow humans, we are destroying shalom. I see. I see. So that, that practice of exclusion, of setting lines, and then I think what we've seen play out in the United States is uh, the setting of lines also, there is some level of hierarchy that begins to develop with these different... Um, you recently came back from Colombia and Peru. And can you tell us a little bit of how you see peace building happening on the ground? What are what are the places of hope that you find? And, and tell us just a little bit of the context uh, that the work is happening. Thank you, Nikki. I have the honor of serving with a Peruvian organization that uh, is called Paz y Esperanza, Peace and Hope, um, was founded in the middle of an internal armed conflict in Peru. And as the conflict, the armed conflict ended in Peru, we at Paz Esperanza saw that we were left with a very violent country. And then we looked around and we saw teams of Christians in different neighboring countries in South America telling us we might not have had the same armed conflict, but we're also very violent countries. Countries oh. where violence takes place every day against women, against children, uh -huh. against people of different ethnicities, against people in poverty, people who are mm -hmm. disabled. So Paz Esperanza, grown from Peru to serve with communities in seven countries of Latin America. And, uh, and you just mentioned Colombia. And Colombia is um, one of the most interesting cases I would like to share about today because it's the longest armed conflict in our hemisphere. 60 plus years of internal armed conflict. An estimated toll of 250,000 people, 7 million people internally displaced within the territory. And we don't know the numbers of the international diaspora of Colombians, wherever you go in the world, you most likely will find Colombians who have left their country because of this terrible war. So clearly, uh, the work of peacemaking is very important. And I refer to peacemaking as the opportunity for negotiators to bring worrying parties to the table, to recognize one another, to dialogue, to dream together how we can end the conflict. Paz Esperanza is not working in that regard, we are not a powerful organization working with the government. That there are others, and I am very grateful for all of them who are doing work as peacemakers. We recognize ourselves and our humble work, which is very grassroots level, 
as peace builders. And what we do uh, is serve with the internally displaced communities, especially because we are a small organization in Colombia. We are, we are focused in the Medellin metropolitan area, and particularly in the areas of Antioquia and El Chocó, which are regions that have been severely affected by the violence in the last six decades. Um, maybe for our listeners, uh, you may be wondering, like, who are the main actors in the war? So there are multiple actors. Uh, there are different left-wing guerrillas, historical groups. The drug trafficking uh, cartels are very powerful actors in the war. Right-wing paramilitary groups, self-defense groups, and also the Colombian armed forces supported by the United States. Wow, so, so here, these different uh, contributors to instability and to violence. Exactly. And uh, being a peace builder uh, and a peacemaker also is a very dangerous thing in Colombia. Being a voice for human rights, a voice for social uh, justice, a voice for environmental care and environmental justice puts people at risk immediately. Successive Colombian government administrations have tried to bring an end to this conflict and most of them have failed. But in 2016, President Santos was able to offer an opportunity for the peace accords that currently are taking place. And I was really disappointed when I saw the role of many evangelical churches in the bigger cities opposing the peace accords. And, uh, and so that's, that's what makes us think, oh my goodness, we really need to work with Christians. We say we love peace. We worship the Prince of Peace. We find peace in God. But that peace is not just for me in my heart without any connection with the people that surround me and my community and my country. Actually, that the peace that God gives us, the peace that we find in Jesus as our Savior, should be the source for courage and empowerment to build better conditions of living for our fellow human beings, especially those who have suffered already so much violence and injustice. It does seem like the church would have been, at least has the categories for seeking the peace of the cities in which they are a part of. So it feels surprising to me that actually it would be a block of the churches that are opposing these peace accords. What is it that Paz y Esperanza is doing? How are you equipping or, or what are the things that people are doing to show up that actually builds peace in neighborhoods? So our emphasis in Colombia is to contribute to the reweaving of relationships at the grassroots level. I would like to highlight two of our projects. There are others, but two that particularly uh, illustrate the commitment and the, the calling that we are pursuing. And one of them is called Mujeres de la Memoria, Women for a Memory. Uh, in this kind of internal armed conflicts, this is true in Colombia, it has been true, continues to be true in Peru. The victims' voices tend to be silenced it, because whoever is in power, typically they don't want to deal with the legacy of the violence. So in Colombia, according to the findings of the Colombian Truth Commission, uh, we have a country that has been traumatized. 
And what we have is so many women who are survivors. They themselves have suffered horrendous experiences of sexual and other kinds of violence. They have seen their parents, brothers, sisters, husbands, partners, daughters, and sons killed mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. one or the other group in the internal mm -hmm. conflict. Mm -hmm. And they have been pushed out of their home. And they were poor before. It's not that they were mm -hmm. rich and they left mm -hmm. their riches somewhere else in Colombia. They were already poor. And that's why they were forced out of their land because they couldn't mm -hmm. defend themselves or some of them made the choice not to resist violently. So they had no choice but to leave. And they mm -hmm. have relocated to the poorest areas of the poverty belt of the wonderful city of Medellin in Colombia. What a great city. But this poverty belt sees the most abject poverty. In, of course, we have not done a quantitative study, but from the work that we are doing on the ground, we can see that the average person who lives in Vereda Granizal is a survivor of violence uh, to themselves, to their own families or their, or their communities uh, by any of the actors I already mentioned. Uh, sometimes so in the in the meetings where we bring together, when our team brings together the women for memory, we listen to the testimonies, we practice circle processes for healing for these women to find their voice. And once they find them, they become so articulate. It's incredible what just giving the opportunity, what difference it makes. So it sounds like uh, you hold a space for these women to bring up these dangerous memories in in hopes that both the sharing both builds relationships for them as well as brings some measure of healing and reconciliation. Is that how that program works? Yes. And this program started before the Truth Commission started. So a lot of this work has been very instrumental for the truth the work of the Truth Commission in Colombia, as it happened also uh, in Peru. So with that comes the gathering of evidence. And you know, the, the crimes during war, they're so hard to prove many times because evidence is destroyed by the perpetrators, right? So it's the narratives and the narratives tend to be consistent, showing patterns of attacks, patterns of interventions. Um, now, these women, um, many of them are mothers, grandmothers, many times caring for their grandchildren because the the grandchildren's parents uh, were killed in the war or, or they are in prison. You know, because we serve with, with survivors of all groups. We do not distinguish and we do not exclude. And um, it is just so amazing to hear these women who themselves are in poverty. So we also try to facilitate. We are not a, an economic development organization. We, we understand ourselves as a peace-building organization. And therefore, human development is very key. Yes. But yeah, obviously, helping them find ways to, to find uh, ways to support themselves, to, to be in community, and something that is extremely important in Colombia, to grow in trust with one another. Because when you have suffered so much violence, trusting other persons is extremely difficult. Oh. That's powerful. Thank you. Thanks for unpacking that a bit. 
you were about to start and describe another project. Yes, yes. I, I am so proud of the work that Peace and Hope is doing in Colombia. Our team there themselves are very young people, and they are leading this incredible projects at the grassroots level. Our youth leadership formation program uh, focuses on accompanying teenagers so that they can find purpose for peace, truth, and justice. Uh, these teams are themselves uh, displaced people or they are born to parents who were displaced. Many of them, if not all of them, come from monoparental homes. And their mother typically is the mother that is with them. And sometimes the father, they spend almost all day out of the home because they need to find a way to provide food on the table. So these teams come back from, from school and they are by themselves. They are alone at home at risk of being recruited by the gangs, by the drug cartels, um, you know, getting involved in, in other things that are, that will not be conducive for shalom in their lives and their families and communities. So we want to go against that overwhelming pattern and say, hey, come to the youth program. Let's do things together. Let's get to know one another, especially uh, for the girls, although we work with both girls and boys, especially for the girls. They are, they are at very high risk of being uh, victims of sexual trafficking. So we want to protect them. And I am so delighted to share that uh, this is a project that we carry out uh, in collaboration with the Catholic Church that is located in one of the farthest, the most remote point uh, in Vereda Nizal. So the, the brothers and sisters of the Catholic Church allow Peace and Hope teams to come and use the infrastructure of the Catholic Church. The teens gather weekly, uh, sometimes every day of the week, and they have opportunities to do homework together, to become friends, but also to share their own stories, to, to share about the things that um, concern them, that make them anxious. They get involved in ecumenical prayer. We, Paz Esperanza never imposes a, a requirement of conversion of any kind or a, nor a commitment to attend any church. We do encourage people to to have communion with God and to find communion with a local church community, but uh, we don't tell them what church community. These children, these, these teenagers have already gone through so much despite their young year, the younger years. Um, but to see the hope, to see the, their understanding of the work, the importance of the work of the Truth Commission in their country, the importance of being able to stand up and, and resist violence through nonviolent means, uh, it's, it's just incredibly encouraging. I have learned so much just through listening from them. Oh, that's fantastic. You've mentioned the Truth Commission in Colombia. What is it that for those of us outside of that context, what do we need to know about the Truth Commission and the role that it's playing? It is extremely important to recognize the relevance of the findings of a Truth Commission in any country. If the Truth Commission represents uh a substantial degree of independence. And in the case of mm -hmm. Colombia and Peru, for example, mm -hmm. Argentina as well, uh, the Truth Commissions uh, truly made an incredible effort to protect and preserve uh, evidence of what happened to the country in these last decades. See, when, when a country is in a, 
in a context of internal conflict and the government is involved, which is the typical case, right? The, the national government is part of the conflict. Many times atrocities take place at the hands of regular armed forces. So there are incentives for people in power to try to eliminate evidence, to try to change the history. And also while they are in government, many times they dominate the narrative. Uh, in Peru, this was very clear during the, the war, especially under the presidency of Mr. Alberto Fujimori. He had some kind of influence and agreement, I could explain that later, that basically dominated the discourse of not only of state-sponsored media, it was all media were uh, serving the narrative of the government. And therefore, the voices of the victims were silenced. And that is the purpose of truth commissions, like in the case of South Africa, to, to amplify the voices that have been silenced for so long and to offer... Um, I hope that things can be different. Invite people to imagine a different Colombia. And for, for Colombians to learn that the role that the Truth Commission has played, uh, I believe is essential, preserving the memory. Yeah, it seems like truth, a common public narrative, is essential for a community to have kind of a common understanding or a common retelling um, because it seems like when you have totally different memories or totally different narratives, that it's very easy to sort of stay in this uh, separated and unreconciled state, but that there is something that is an essential building block uh, for reconciliation, that a common narrative and truth, the speaking out of truth and uh, uh, of sharing of each other's stories and stories particularly that were suppressed that seems very uh, essential in that process. Um, we have you here as a political scientist and as a lawyer. And I have to ask you, as you are reflecting on the different things that are giving you hope in the Latin American context, is there a particular word or insight that you think in the in the North American political context, there's something we we should probably notice and, and learn from? Let me share that. As I travel, I have traveled in Colombia, in Peru, and in other countries in the Americas. Something to be celebrated is the presence of Christian communities everywhere. In the most remote, poorest areas of Colombia and Peru, where there are no hospitals, there are no public schools, there, there is no police station, there is always a church, there is always a Christian community. And the members of Christian communities in those regions, they are themselves survivors of the violence, but they are providing a space for people to come and be together. And we may disagree, and disagreeing is not a problem, right? We are thinking individuals. We are human beings with our own dreams and expectations, our own understandings. Different life experiences lead us to think differently. That is not a bad thing. But to be able to come together and recognize each other as fellow human beings and that we don't need to agree on everything. And um, 
And I think that here in the United States, we need to come together more often. We tend to gravitate. We go to do church with people who look like us. We do church uh, with people that we think agree with us. Uh, we choose a what a school to go to based on what we think they are going to teach our children <laughs> so that they can think like us. Uh, I think we need to be more courageous and engage in dialogue. And of course, social media does not help. So we need to be intentional about engaging in respectful dialogue and being willing to listen to listen to one another, listen for understanding, not for agreement, right? So listening for understanding is something that I think that churches in many remote areas of countries that experience violence is probably their greatest contribution uh, to providing a space for us to come together in our diversity. Now, of course, <laughs> the church itself is very diverse, not only in denominations, Uh, or historical paths. There are churches that do not contribute to peace building. So we need, we need to recognize that, that the Christian world is a very broken world, in that uh, I hear many times in dialogues with uh, brothers and sisters who are pastors, time and again they emphasize, and I think they are, they are correct, they emphasize that the most important work of the church at the local level is discipleship. Spiritual formation is essential. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to affirm that. Let me just add to that, that discipleship must involve preparing people to be agents for shalom. Mm -hmm. You know, discipleship is not just how we cultivate a relationship with God. God does not care for floating individual souls in the universe. <laughs> I love that God picture. God <laughs> cares for people, for people. God wants to build a people in the world with all the complex and contradictions and the complexities uh -huh. that we bring as human beings, uh, as communities. So discipleship, yes, but discipleship, the true discipleship, invites us to take shalom very seriously. And shalom with God, shalom with one another, shalom with this planet that is our common home, then we are destroying too quickly. Nina Balmaceda, thank you so much for unpacking that picture of a shalom that is more expansive and more hopeful than I think we realized. Thank you so much for joining us here on 20 Minute Takes. Thank you so much, Nikki. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. We're produced and edited by David DeLeon. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and the music is done by Andre Henry. You can find us on the web at ChristiansforSocialAction.org. Give us five stars, write a review, and share about the podcast with your friends.